It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It's the first line in a pretty famous novel, and if you saw the title of my sermon, you might have an idea of which one. So go ahead and show off to everyone you're with how smart you are. Tell them the name of the title and the author if you can. Can you? It's A Tale of Two Cities by Dickens. I can't claim to have read it myself. The truth is, I wasn't much of a reader growing up. The gift of books was lost on me. But thankfully, I did have a few good English teachers along the way that enforced me to encounter a few of the classics. And one of those classic authors was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Russian author from the 20th century who actually served in the Soviet army during World War II. And while serving in the Soviet army, he experienced and he saw these awful war crimes that he and his fellow Russians were committing against the German army that they were fighting. And later, Scholzenissen began to write and even criticize Stalin. And because of that, he was thrown into a Soviet labor camp. Eventually, he writes about what a day is like in those camps, and he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his writing. And Solzhenitsyn, he has this great quote that you may have heard before. Gradually, it was disclosed to me, he writes, that the line separating good and evil passes not through states or different countries, nor between classes, nor political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And that line shifts, he says. Inside us, it oscillates with the years, and even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. That's the kind of thing that only someone who is transcending either or thinking could write. It's a deeper kind of wisdom that something in us knows is true, don't we? But we have the hardest time remembering I mean, he names quite clearly that there is good and there is evil in the world. There is right and there is wrong. And we need to be able to name that and call it for what it is. But at the same time, he's able to see that we ourselves are never completely one or the other. We are both. All of us are. And that's really hard for us to hold that kind of paradox together. We tend to see ourselves as one or the other. I'm a good person or I'm not a good person. I'm worthless or I'm so much better than you. I feel so close to God. I'm so far away from God. We brush with these broad either or strokes and we have such a hard time of holding together the paradox 
in which two seemingly opposite things can actually be true at the very same time. Well, this morning in Luke's gospel, Jesus is pushing us to see how we even do this with our spirituality. We judge others who do more. We judge others who practice their faith less and all all often in a kind of defensive reflex. Without even realizing it, we're often judging what's actually that line in our own hearts, shifting and moving, exposing that we ourselves contain the best of humanity and the worst of humanity. We ourselves contain wisdom and folly. Jesus invites us to see this by telling us or reminding us of the tale of two spiritualities. The first spirituality we learn in the tale of John the Baptist, John is what you might call an ascetic. He was known for living out in the desert with extreme fasting. He wore camel's hair, which would make me itch all over He ate locusts and honey. There wasn't really anything normal about this guy. And so they looked at him and figured, well, something must be a little off with John. This guy's not right in the head. He must have a demon, they'd say. In other words, they dismissed his life choices. And by doing that, they were able to dismiss his message. It's our tendency, I think. We see someone practicing faith in some sort of extreme way. This guy isn't normal, we think. I mean, sure, it's good to be devoted to God, but that's kind of out there. And I don't know, but I don't think God really wants me to sell my house and my clothes and move Jesse and all my kids to the wasteland of, I don't know, say the boot hill of Missouri. I'm no John the Baptist or any others who've done that sort of extreme thing. I'm all too practical for that. I mean, to do those kinds of things, those guys must be a little off. Or so we tell ourselves, because it's just a whole lot easier to dismiss them than to deal with them. But, you know, if we peel back the layers just a little bit and look again, we might find that there is an important wisdom in John's approach, even in the folly that we see. In fact, most of the world's great religions, the world's great spiritualities, do include some kind of ascetic practice uh, that is a, a practice of denial, of renunciation, of reduction. And that's because there is this deep connection between our physical bodies and our souls. They aren't two separate, unconnected things. In fact, the mystery of the incarnation itself at the very heart of our faith is this mystery that is revealing the intertwining between the physical body and the divine presence. It's a mystery that reveals something that's true about who we are. We aren't just spirits trapped into some unimportant body for a time. No, we are ensouled bodies So what we do with our body has a direct connection to our souls, our spiritual life. If we degrade our bodies, we are degrading our soul. When we dull the senses of our bodies by overindulging, we are dulling the awareness of our soul. 
When we care for our bodies, we care for our soul. And when we learn to heighten the awareness of our body, we heighten the awareness of our souls. These things go hand in hand. That's why one of the fundamental practices across all the great traditions, a fundamental practice since the beginning of Christianity, a practice that Jesus started his adult ministry with, is the practice of fasting. You know, there's a lot of confusion about fasting out there, and some of that confusion, I think, has led modern people like you and me to just sort of ignore the whole thing. That's legalism, that's harsh, or maybe that's just for those super religious extreme folks. The the list could go on of things that we've believed, but the truth is that John's spirituality, John the Baptist's spirituality, has a lot to teach us, especially, I think, in our modern world of instant gratification and pleasure and entertainment and food just on demand. We don't even realize how much our impulses and drives control most of our life. It's a big part of why fasting has always been considered one of the important, helpful spiritual practices. Saying no to something like food for a period of time allows us to do some hard spiritual work. It's kind of like a musician practicing their scales or an athlete doing workouts after school or or in training. It's not always fun, but it's needed. You practice the mechanics so that you start to develop a different kind of capacity, this inner ability, and you may not do it perfect, but that's why you keep practicing it. Saying no to your impulse, to the small things, enables you to say no to an impulse that might be driving you in some bigger ways, to impulses that you may not even recognize at first, but are derailing your life. You see, part of what fasting does is it allows us to face the truth about ourselves, truths that we tend to avoid or we don't even recognize. Maybe I am not as kind and generous and open-hearted as I like to think I am. Maybe I'm not as right in my convictions or as I think I am, or I'm not as strong as I think. Maybe I am driven by some things that are other than God. Fasting helps to clear the clutter so that our awareness is heightened. It's increased. If you've ever tried one of those popular diets that have come along for the way, maybe something like cutting out all the sugar in your diet for 30 days to do a cleansing of your body, then you know that doing something like that can make just a simple piece of fruit taste amazingly sweet because you've not been eating any sugar. Our senses get heightened. Well, when we fast, we're not dieting, but we are choosing to forgo certain things which will heighten the awareness of our body. And when that heightened awareness is combined with a desire for God, it can also create a heightened awareness of the divine in our life. 
We develop this openness to God in new ways. And, and we can begin to start to notice where that line between good and evil is shifting, even in us. These are some of the gifts of John's spirituality. Of course, fasting has, and other ascetic, ascetic practices, have also been abused along the way, and they easily can become warped, just like any spiritual practice can. So it's always so important to remember that the point of fasting isn't pride, it's humility. The point of fasting is not some kind of purity, it's honesty. If we want to cultivate an awareness of God in our life, if we want to grow in faith and hope and love, then the witness of the centuries, the witness of Christian saints, is that fasting is one of the tools that can help us. So that's the tale of the first spirituality, and it's an important one, but it's not the only one Jesus names in our passage. The second is the spirituality in the tale of Jesus. As I talked about last week, when you read the Gospel of Luke especially, the story of Jesus is a story of feasting and celebrating and embracing the goodness of life. And so already by this point here in chapter 7, Jesus has developed a bit of a reputation of being a lush. People looked at the parties he was going to and all the banquets and the feasting and the celebrating, and they couldn't help but think, Man, that guy is a hedonist. He is a pleasure seeker. He has no discipline in his life. He's a drunk and a glutton, they called him. In other words, think about this, and I really want you to picture this again in your mind today. When the people of Jesus' day watched the way he was living and thought about Jesus, they imagined him at a table with a group of friends sitting down to a spread of good food. They pictured Jesus with a glass of wine in his hand and the spark of joy in his eyes. They imagined him celebrating and laughing a bit too much. I mean, a little in moderation, that's okay, but Jesus apparently was crossing the line for their sensibilities. Jesus' life embodies a spirituality of celebration and joy. And it's a reminder that this too is essential. It's a part of any healthy spiritual life. Because when we embrace the gifts of life, we come to know the giver of life. When we celebrate and laugh, we are filled with a joy that is of God. The joy of the Lord is the way the scriptures put it. And they say in the scriptures that the joy of the Lord is our strength. There's actually this quote I came across a few years ago that I just love. It's from this medieval mystic named Meister Eckhart. And he writes, do you want to know what goes on in the core of the Trinity? I will tell you, in the core of the Trinity, the Father laughs and gives birth to the Son. The Son 
laughs back at the Father and gives birth to the Spirit. The whole Trinity laughs and gives birth to us. The whole Trinity gives birth to us in laughter. We are created and enlivened in the laughter of God. It's beautiful. And it makes me think that when we laugh and when we enjoy the goodness of life, we are participating in something holy. And so there you have it. It's the tale of two spiritualities, the story of John and the story of Jesus. A tale of fasting and of feasting, of discipline and indulgence, of saying no and saying yes. And the tendency for most of us is to get lost in that paradox and do neither. (laughs) John must have a demon, they said. Jesus, he was a drunk and a glutton, they said. But the truth is, both spiritualities are needed to grow in the life and the love of God. Both are tools that help us become more Christian. If all we do is practice harsh disciplines, we will become hard and sour in spirit. If all we do is eat and drink and celebrate, then life actually begins to lose its color and our ability for that delight and joy gets dulled because our senses are overwhelmed. Our awareness of God actually becomes clouded. Jesus, he honored both. And remember, he practiced both that season of fasting at the beginning of his ministry and then that years of feasting as a way of offering joy to the world. And he's reminding us that we need both too. And so I want to invite you to consider practicing both yourself, even this week. As you might know, Ash Wednesday is coming up this week, Lent is just around the corner. And so I want to invite you to start thinking about some kind of Lenten practice that might involve fasting. Maybe fasting from food, fasting from social media, fasting from TV. Remember, the invitation is not to be extreme or harsh or to punish yourself. You don't have something to prove here. We're not aiming for spiritual heroics in fasting. We are aiming for God. So as you think about what you might let go of for 40 days of Lent, let your desire for God be what guides you, not your pride. So spend some time in the next few days asking yourself what things might be keeping me from delight? What might be clouding my awareness of goodness and beauty? What might I need to let go of for just a month and a half in order to cultivate a greater openness to God? And allow those questions to guide any commitments you make. That's the first invitation for this week. Start thinking about how you will be practicing Lent so that Lent is a season that is healing for your soul. 
The second invitation for this week, though, is into the spirituality of Jesus in these next few days. You see, there's this long tradition, remember, of feasting just before the start of Lent. In fact, Fat Tuesday in Mardi Gras was originally developed by people who were using up all the meats and the fats in their cupboards so that they wouldn't go bad during that season of Lent. I mean, you can imagine some peasant farmer using up their sugar and butter and flour so that it wouldn't go bad. So in the next two days, find some way to celebrate. Make a special meal. Practice joy and delight with someone you love, not so that you're trying to just fill some empty void in you, but eat and drink and laugh, because in those things, you know the laughter of God that's creating you and all things, filling life with goodness. So those are my invitations for you this week. Feast and no love. Fast to become open more and more to love. And doing both things, may you discover more and more of the God who loves and who delights in you. Amen.